You better believe there's some cleaning going on. We are cleaning the chametz out of the house. Yes, all of that leavened stuff is getting tossed out the window, but we have not yet cleaned our mouths out with soap, so there may be curse words. This has been your obscenity warning. The look in Stephanie's face is priceless right now. <laughs> didn't didn't win with Stephanie? No, not going over well with the it's, uh, it's certain demographics. That's right. Oh, come on, it'll we Jew- have a- Jewish men over seventy uh, respond very well to this joke. <laughs> it will kill in Boca. <laughs> oh, kid, will kill in Boca. It will literally kill in Boca. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, J. Crew. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. And senior writer Liel Libowitz. Sup. This week, uh, two guests. Leah Sarna, who is a final year student at Yeshivat Maharat, which is the school that ordains Orthodox Jewish women, will be with us as our Jew of the Week, our Jatwa. And our Gentile of the Week, our Gatwa, is feminist writer Lauren Euler. But first, but first, before we get to those women, I just, I want to find out what's up with you guys. Liel, what, what's going on with Shay Leibowitz this week? So guys, I've been giving it a lot of thought. Um, so last year, Stephanie got married. And I got, I got a lot of love in the show. And yep. last week, Mark, you announced that you're having another baby, a boy, a Boppenheimer, mm-hmm. if you will. A Boppenheimer. And yeah. so I've, uh, I've decided that, you know, I'm not going to be outstaged by the <laughs> two of you. I, I need to do something, too. <laughs> Uh, so in light of the, of the recent uh, political developments in Israel, I'm announcing my uh, candidacy for Prime Minister of Israel. Wow. A- applause <laughs> right that now. That is amazing. Uh, I think I could, uh, I mean, look, it's 2018. I think I could work remotely. I could work from home. <laughs> you could just Skype in. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I need to be there most of the time. And we should say Mark's not here now. That's um, right. You he's know, at home. I, but So you could do anything from anywhere. Basically, I'll, I'll Skype in or, or do FaceTime for cabinet meetings. Um, think about how much money Israel will save if I work from home. Because like the whole point with Bibi is like, you know, all these investigations for like the fancy furniture and like the fancy chefs. like And that never happens in america uh, no but like i will never be in the prime minister's residence i would be in my right. apartment on the upper west side you'll be running israel from the upper west <laughs> side great. which is essentially you know which is right which is like which the, is uh, the embassy here I, I think we'll have a great i support time. you instead of moving the american embassy <laughs> to <laughs> jerusalem Just move it to the upper we'll west side israeli prime minister's residence to new york so so Genius. so the Bedgarian Airport will be like the 72nd and Broadway subway stop. That's basically. right. That's where, that's where everyone will get all. That's this, where everyone will see. And this is where I will receive my dignitaries they're, when they're they arrive for visits. <laughs> and you'll say, did you have a bar mitzvah? Did it's you like, pack your own bags? That's right. Now come to Grace what was Papaya your portion? For, the, for the ceremonial <laughs> hot dog. Wait, do they, does, does LL, do the security people ever say, what was your Torah portion? Oh, or was always. That a joke? No, no, yeah. they do. No, no, that's They that's are like, did you go to a really? temple growing up or synagogue, maybe yeah. they call it. And then they say, do you have a bar mitzvah? And they say, what was your portion? And I'm like, your Torah portion. And I like start singing no it. Mine was, uh, mine was Parshat Legrum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> might have read it. Yeah. So, so Stephanie, it sounds like nothing at all happened to Liel. This, he sat yeah, around this is, yeah. spinning fantasies. But I'm uh, glad uh, this is the direction that, he went right. in. Another life. Um, Anything, anything real happen in your world? In, in uh, Well, Ben and I did celebrate, I don't celebrate the wrong word, but our six month anniversary. Which is the social oh. media anniversary where you just post pictures of your wedding and everyone likes it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like the soon is like paper and cotton, but this right. was this was you know this is Twitter and oh still just God. you know celebrating the launch of 100 Jewish Foods, 100JewishFoods.tabamag.com, um, which has just amazing writers talking about amazing Jewish foods. To celebrate it, I have I have eaten 100 Jewish foods this past <laughs> week. Well, you probably haven't eaten the food that's made people the most mad, which is the inclusion of bacon on this list, and people are like, Ooh. how it's a list of Jewish foods. How could you include bacon? And I'm like 
How could you not include bacon on a list of Jewish foods? We define ourselves so much in opposition to other things. Now, and it's how like, is, how is the, who's the idiot who wrote that piece? I can't even imagine, but, but Liel wrote it. But the idea that if we hadn't included bacon, then just no one would eat bacon. But it's like right. the whole point of the bacon entry is that it's it's so much in our mind, in our consciousness, even if you never eat it, as something you are not, as the ultimate thing you are not allowed to eat. You know that you're having a conversation with Jews when everyone's super upset about the bacon, but the the jellied calf's foot everyone's cool with. Yeah, they're like, that. of course that should be included. I have two things that happened to me this week, neither one of which tops either of your announcements. The first thing I want to say is that I went on a school field trip yesterday with Ellie's fourth grade class. Uh, because they had allegedly all done their homework for a certain period of time, they uh, got a an incentive trip, they're called. They have incentive. There are educational field trips and then there are incentive oh, field my trips. My God, I love this. And they got an incentive field trip to go to um, the duck pin bowling lanes in West Haven. But that was not even quite as cool as our first listener party. Uh, You know that we've been talking about how if you get a bunch of people together to listen to an episode, one of us will Skype in with you. And I Skyped in uh, with a nice group of people sitting in the living room or around the dining room table, I should say, of Lauren Amdursky in Bethesda, Maryland. And they had just listened to our show, The Kids Are All Right, where you go to the charter school, Liel. Um, up in up in Harlem, and they had all sorts of, of cool questions, and it was just so great to like be in their living room. It was really fun. This is how much we love we love our listeners. We 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 would personally. What other podcast? Tell me what other podcast calls you personally after you listen to an episode? <laughs> I think mean, was the episode all right? Was it too what hot? Did you think <laughs> too salty? <laughs> Do you look hungry? <laughs> Well, it is funny because, I mean, they had mostly complimentary things to say, but we said to them at the end, like, what would you change? And then they had things they would change. I mean, you know, they're giving us, you know, they're they're giving feedback to the chef, which is like great, a focus is- group. I love that. <laughs> By the way, I like this past week has been really fun for me because as every person I know listens to the podcast, I've gotten messages being like, oh, my God, Mark. Oh, my God. Mark's having another baby. And it's like every single day I, would, I got one yesterday. And I was like, yep. Wow. And I just sort of relive the shock and excitement over and over again. The adrenaline <laughs> and they were like, did you really not know? And I was like, did I sound like I right. knew in advance? <laughs> a little news of the Jews. The first item, you blame the Jews, we expel the Russians. Uh, in an interview on NBC over the weekend, Vladimir Putin was asked about the 13 Russians who Robert Mueller um, has charged in some thing that I don't fully understand, but I personally am convinced that Putin did it. Um, Anyway, he gave this long meandering response in which he said, this is Putin, maybe they're not even Russians, but Ukrainians, taters or Jews, but with Russian citizenship, which should be checked. So, first of all, no, taters? First of all, t- Wait, first of all poutine to, and yeah, taters? taters like, like, what is going on? <laughs> uh, do you have, like, are you stoned right now? Potato-based uh, food stuff on is this the mind? hundred Jewish foods envy? P- Sorry, I just went Russian. Tatars, I had a Russian moment. Uh, aren't... <laughs> okay, so, first of all, Putin is basically saying the people who did this espionage, uh, the election interference, might not be Russians even, but Ukrainians, taters, or Jews. So, first of all, the libel that if you're uh, a Jew, you're not actually a real Russian, a real citizen. That's like the Second least of, all, of our problems here. Right. <laughs> Second of all, um... Taters? What? So taters? <laughs> or Tatars? Tatars are the uh, second largest what? ethnic group in Russia. It's, that's a thing? That's a real thing? You, Does anyone speak Tatar? You, sir, have offended the Tatars. <laughs> no, I apologize. Uh, I know that they are referred to as a group. Are they the same as the Magyars? No, those are Hungarians. That is What correct. are Tatars? Uh, Tatars are an ethnic Russian group. So here's the thing. A bunch of people have, have written in with explanations, which is not to say that it is ever cool to blame the Jews, but uh, sort of explaining that in, in the original Russian, 
uh, he a used a word for Russians that meant you know uh, ethnicity rather than nationality, like true Russians, like like right ethnic Russians versus <laughs> ah, the true ones versus not the pure Russians, uh, and then that he was basically then recounting. Other ethnicities, uh, Ukrainians being the largest ethnic minority group, Tatars being the second largest, and Jews, uh, maybe because he likes them. I mean, the crazy thing is that he does have a really long history of being like crazily philo-Semitic. Like that man from his very childhood has surrounded himself almost exclusively with some of his best Jewish friends. friends. Well, right. all of his best friends, not some. I mean, this is this is something that people have right. been. Most of his favorite corrupt oligarchs are that, Jews. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, and, you know, it's like, <laughs> who is smart? Who can make business in country? Jew, come here. Um, you know, not cool, Putin. Uh, and then in response, uh, some Democratic Congress people, including Chuck Schumer, said, well, maybe we should just expel a bunch of Russians who are here uh, on the on the diplomatic delegation. So it's like, you insult our Jews, we expel your Russians. But, like, this is crazy. It's like, what's, what's in the news right now? Donald Trump, Louis Farrakhan... Putin blaming the Jew, like Russia blaming the Jews, and we're just like the, what? The year saying is, they're not fully. I think it's like yeah, where, where are we? The year is 1986. I'm, yeah, I I'm, just got my first Atari. I'm not here. <laughs> we're we're going to see the Goonies this week. Like I missed this. Is, yeah, yeah Stephanie I missed is three this the first being time born. around, and now I'm just getting to do it again. Yes, welcome, welcome to the 80s. Welcome to the 80s. It's but the final crazy. word on this. The final word of this has to go to our listener Kay Gilbert, who wrote this extraordinary ditty in honor of Vladimir Putin. If you're caught rigging elections, blame the Jews. If your poison's not perfection, blame the Jews. Your Olympians are doping. U.S. sanctions have you moping, but you've got a means of coping. Blame the Jews. And that's what he does. That was our listener, Kay Gilbert, making excellent use of the listener line. Uh, over to Israel, where a from lady wins the marathon. The fastest Israeli female finisher in the Jerusalem Marathon this year was Bt Deutsch, 28-year-old mother of five, who ran in memory of her 14-year-old cousin. She ran in a skirt and a head covering, and she finished first among all Israeli women in a time of 309.50. First of all, congratulations, BD. It's an amazing achievement. Huge congratulations. I don't even think that she realized she was running the marathon. I think a mother of five, as you know, you can attest. I think you're just <laughs> running. as That's like your natural you just, state. Yeah, you just go that fast all the time. <laughs> she just left the house. Like, hold on. Where's, where did they put this bag? Where's the kid's lunch? It's like, I and, get this one there. Right, and like three hours later, they're like, congratulations. You're like, for what? I mean, and look. You're 25th in the marathon. <laughs> whatever the times are. I mean, she was the, the 25th fastest runner overall to ever finish this race. Right. And that is so badass. Yeah. And she is awesome. Amazing, amazing, she amazing. She is awesome. Uh, like Israel, it took, it took just, me six and a half hours to finish New York. It's a much easier marathon. Well, first you to get here. That's, that's right. <laughs> She's took me She's six hours twice to as run fast to New York. as you are. She is. Uh, Israel killing it this week. Their entry in the Eurovision Song Contest, which I'm just going to turn to Liel to explain this because I don't really understand Eurovision. Yeah, like what is Eurovision? It's American Idol for the whole continent or something? God forbid, Uh, how dare you? Uh, (laughs) Eurovision is is a continuation of war by other means. Uh, It is when all the countries in Europe, uh, after after the Second World War, decided that, you know, um, mutually assured destruction wasn't really working for them. Instead, they'll settle their differences and animosities in the the form of a song competition. And so we all get together uh, every year and we send our absolute weirdest people. This is where like ABBA got got its start. Like this is. Wait, this is this is true. This was a post. Is it or am I just really gullible? Is this a post-war peacekeeping UNESCO 
you're very, you're very gullible. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, but we treat it that way because literally at any point, you know, the discussion in virtually every European paper is you will see like, an, like a news analysis column, like who is going to vote, like who's going to give us points this year and who won't because they hate us. Like the Russians would be like, the Ukrainians will never vote for us. The Israelis like, the Portuguese are anti-Semites. Like it, the whole thing is just like <laughs> crazy. And so look, Israel has done really well in the 70s. Um, we have Abani B, which some people may remember. Then we had Hallelujah, which is a huge smash hit. We won again in 1998 with uh, with Diva by Dana International, which is a, a I big, can't believe big, you know all this. Oh, this is amazing, dude! It's this like, is like what they teach you. This in... is what they teach you in school after after the hundred great Jewish foods. This is what they teach us in school. This is when they draft um, you. They say. And so, look, <laughs> we've we've had a, we've had a few tough decades. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, we we haven't done well. But this year, but now you're gonna be back because no, no, this year's entry this from year, Israel is. We're going to win. Amazing. Yep. So it's by this woman named Netta Barzilai, mm-hmm. and a song, the song is called Toy. It's written by Daron Medley and Stavberger. And the video, which we have to embed in the newsletter this week, is, I mean, it's basically the Israeli Gangnam style. It's totally catchy and totally stupid. And I got to say, if my kids ever get this in their ears, they will torture us all to death singing this. But it is it is an amazing song. And I guess the bookmakers, the the, the Lloyds of Petach Tikva, or whoever makes the, <laughs> the odds, says that, like, this is the year, right? You're going to be back. Odds are three to one. Baby, Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Jewish guest this week is Leah Serna. She's in her fourth and final year at Yeshivat Maharat here in New York, and that is the first yeshiva to ordain women as Orthodox Jewish clergy. Next year, when she graduates, she'll be the Director of Religious Engagement at Anche Sholom B'nai Israel Congregation in Chicago. That is a lot of big words. Welcome, Leah. Thank you. <laughs> so should we call you rabbi? Um, probably not. Tell us why. Um Basically, there's a lot of feelings about this in the Orthodox community. What we're trying to do is very super new. And sometimes the word rabbi for many people connotes lots of different um, religious activities, some of which in our community women can't fulfill. So women don't count for a minyan, a prayer quorum. Uh, women can't serve as religious witnesses. Um, also uh, can't serve on a, a beit din, a religious court. So there are certain things that kind of people might associate with rabbis that then women who are in clergy can't do in our community. So we're going to be going by rabbanit for me. And then I sort of identify as like religious leadership or clergy um, so as not to get anyone confused, but it's, it's also a lot of politics. And there are graduates of Yeshivat Maharat who use at least three different terms for this spiritual leadership that you exercise, right? Oh yeah, definitely. So certainly there's women who go by rabbi. Um, there are also women who go by rabbanit, which is what I'll be called women who go by Maharat, which is an acronym. We can go over that in a second. And, um, and also there was a woman who went, went by Moratinu, which means our teacher. She then changed her title to Rabbanit because everything is confusing. And then there's women like Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz, who was the first woman ordained by Rabbi Avi Weiss, who then founded our yeshiva and is now its president, who goes by Rabbah. And it seems like the idea of the name specifically and um, semantics are such such an issue here. So how, how recent is this phenomenon? I mean, when was the first woman that you mentioned um, ordained? Sarah Horowitz was ordained in 2009, which just in terms of, of me, that was when I was graduating high school. I graduated high school in 2009, and I wrote my senior thesis in high school about whether Orthodox women would ever be rabbis. And then right as my senior thesis was like going to print, <laughs> I was like, surprise, there is one. And, and was, so your thesis is like, no way. No, my thesis was like, yes, but it would be super complicated. And then like, I was right. And so wait, yeah, is it super complicated for you? As in your experience? Um, yes and no. Meaning, yes, in the sense that there's a ton of politics and there's certainly people who are like uncomfortable or unsure. But at the same time, like, I'm not in a position to serve all the Orthodox Jews. And there certainly are enough Orthodox Jews who are interested and excited by what we have to offer that I work 
all the time and found a job much more easily than anyone expected. I called my grandparents to tell them my grandparents are reformed Jews and I called them to tell them that I got a job and they were like, wow, we never thought it would be so easy for you, (laughs) Um, which was pretty amazing. So, so on the one hand, like on the bigger scheme of things, yeah, it's like a lot of politics and infighting, but on the personal like scale, it, it really hasn't, hasn't been so hard. I want to get to the personal scale in a sec, but let me, let me ask you this. Give us a sort of like game of Thrones lay of the land. So who's, who's fighting who here? Uh, What are the different sides? What are the different opinions? What are different camps or organizations? The first thing I'll say is that Game of Thrones is like a really inappropriate show that I don't watch and that Orthodox Jews in general are advised against. I I don't watch it either. So so here we are. Um, Just my own personal And by the way, for the same reasons. Oh, okay, great. Um, Wait, wait, wait. So Orthodox Jews, wait, wait, pause for a second. They don't watch it because of all the nudity? I'm not saying they don't watch it. I'm saying I think they they don't. Why don't they watch it? In my position as clergy or whatever you want to call me that that is uh, yeah nudity and violence and like bad values i agree with the rabbi <laughs> thanks so the wire so let's sorry that's your, this yeah. a whole other episode but go ahead answer leo's question <laughs> um Oh, the lay of the land. Right. So, okay. So basically there's a lot of different Orthodox organizations out there in the United States and we're going to leave Israel to the side because actually that's like a very interesting um, comparison that doesn't quite fall out the way anyone expected that it would. Um, but in America, you have you have the ultra-Orthodox community. So you have like the Aguda and then recently a new ultra-Orthodox organization came out just right before Purim with another statement against us. They're called the Rabbinical Alliance of America, uh, which I, I, I didn't quite know what that was, but they signed their names at the bottom which this is, is like star wars uh, <laughs> no it's like super packs it's not the rebel alliance it's the rabbi alliance yes <laughs> it's a different thing yes so anyway so right from the beginning the ultra-orthodox community was like this is terrible you're worse than reformed jews you're destroying our house um which is like a kind of a reasonable thing for them to feel um but then the modern orthodox community kind of hopped into the fray so and that that actually took longer than anyone expected so more or less from the beginning the rabbinical council of america which is the rabbinical council that most Yeshiva University graduates are members of, but it's it's in, in a way a big tent. Meaning, there's a lot of, of people who are who are members of the RCA, including all of the um, people who do kashrut supervision for the OU. Many of them are members. So the OU is the Orthodox Union, which gives. Um, the hechsher, the kosher sign. Yeah, kosher sign, the hechsher, on a lot of food. Um, and so they, A, like that's a big money-making institution, which I'm sure you could do a whole episode about that. Um, so they're very wealthy and therefore very powerful, but also a big tent. And they're trying to maintain their big tent. So they are also catering to the, both the right and the left um, because they need ultra-Orthodox people to eat their hechsher, um, which is complicated. So it's all about food, basically. It's, it's, I mean, it's we're Jews. <laughs> so where does the RCA, the rabbinic rabbinical council. council, where do they come down against uh, pretty strongly? In their statement, they talk about the conservative movement and they're like, yeah, and it totally failed there. And look what happened to the conservative movement now. So how much more so should Orthodox Jews not do this, which is like really fascinating because since when do ultra-Orthodox Jews learn anything from the conservative movement? <laughs> um, so that was like a whole other like can of things. Um, but what's amazing about what they did from the beginning, and then this has been carried forward and expanded, was sort of also at the same time affirm their sense that 
um, women should have access to Torah education and that even even potentially leadership roles. And um, and that was coming from kind of the left flank of the RCA who really, really uh, pushed for that language. Because while you have us, before you had us, you had women who they're called Yowatzot Halacha, who were... Um, halachic advisors. Halachic advisors, exactly. And they advised specifically on, um, on Hilchot Nida, on menstrual purity laws. And so their sense was, hey, women aren't keeping this. If they are keeping it, they're not asking questions. So let's train a whole cadre of women who will answer questions and kind of encourage the observance of this and teach it and like make it more accessible. And Basically just, just the lady parts of the Talmud. Yeah, kind Not of. the whole part of the Talmud. So that's where we come in where we're like, that's awesome to learn that. We spend one year learning that and then another three years learning all the other stuff. Um, and that's kind of the the like yes and response to Yotzot Halacha that's coming from our yeshiva. But I want to sort of be clear, you know, my sense as just someone who has covered this from the outside is that, you know, once you get past all the acronyms, and of course we didn't even mention <laughs> the IRF, right? The International Rabbinic Fellowship, sure. I think, is that what they're calling the the sort of more progressive open orthodoxy community of, of synagogues that's welcoming women's spiritual leadership. Once you get past all these acronyms, there really is this strong concern that there's going to be a bigger split in orthodoxy than there already is. I mean, definitely, yeah. if you boil it down, the worry is, look, they're going to be kind of orthodox, orthodox or right wing orthodox who uh, just would never see a woman as a spiritual leader um, or or you know, give her a lot of pulpit responsibility and then they're going to be left-wing Orthodox and that actually eventually the two of them will will split, that their big tent will really split in half. And do you worry about that or is it not a worry? Would that be okay with you? Um, That's a difficult question in the sense that like, I worry about it. I don't worry about it. I wonder whether it's actually already happened. Like a lot of the people who are talking about that question are men. And the way they talk about it is, will they not pray in my synagogue anymore? But from my perspective, there's so many ultra orthodox synagogues that I can't pray in because there's actually no space for me to pray there. So like, if that's what it means for the community to be divided, it already is. And you're just not noticing it because you don't care about my religious experience as a woman. Um, and if you'll say, well, it's about, you know, we use different Cedarim or we have different rabbinical associations. Well, there's different rabbinical associations between the modern Orthodox community and the right wing um, Haredi community already. So if that's a split, then that split already exists somewhere else. So I just think we have this very fractured community and the hope is that we'll all still be able to eat in each other's homes and and have a little bit of fluidity and and generosity towards each other. What is it like personally for you? So so you grew up Orthodox, yeah. And when you were writing the senior thesis, you're doing it out of you know deep interest in the subject. What were you thinking then as a high school girl? Was it sort of like one day we'll kind of like break that barrier? <laughs> um, like- I I was very skeptical in high school. Basically, I. In like seventh grade at my at the Maimonides School in Brookline, Massachusetts, you start studying Talmud and boys and girls study Talmud together. The school is established by a very influential and brilliant rabbi named Rabbi Joseph Salvechik. And um, under his power, you actually had co-education, which was pretty rare at the time. And so I had the same exact access to texts and Jewish experience as the boys that I grew up with did. And my study partner all the way through high school was this really awesome guy. And then, um, and then over time, I was like, oh man, I would really love to like, 
I don't know, teach Talmud or work in a synagogue. I always loved synagogue. I came to synagogue on time with my parents from a very young age. My mom talks about bringing me to Kol Nidre when I was like three and I just like swung upside down like from the chair the whole time, but very quietly. <laughs> in the spirit of Kol Nidre. In the yeah. spirit of Kol Nidre, exactly. Um, and, um, and I always really looked up to the rabbi Varshul and was sort of like, wow, I... I would love to do his job. And I was, I was a youth group leader in high school and, 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 and that's when like the pastoral side of his job really became really appealing to me and the teaching elements. And I loved studying Talmud. As I said, studied like had totally equal access to Talmud education and then was sort of like, okay, well, all my Talmud teachers are men. Every Orthodox rabbi I know of is a man. Um, guess I can't do that. So I'll be a lawyer. So I got super involved in mock trial. Our team went to nationals. There was actually a Department of Justice suit because they were going to force us to play on Shabbat or forfeit in national mock trial in high school. And, uh, and you won. We won. We won. You were the Sandy Koufax of mock trial. <laughs> <laughs> actually, another team did it first. The TABC. I actually don't know what that stands for. Is a school in New Jersey who and then New Jersey dropped out of national mock trial over oh that. Oh my God. Oh my <laughs> so, God. Twitters. Yeah, right. So the state of Massachusetts is behind us. Low affect. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll be a lawyer and got super involved in social justice work in college because my sense was like, that's somewhere that wants me and I can make a difference and I can talk about values all the time, which is what I really like doing and part of what drew me to clergy kind of work. Um, but then over the course of college, it was like, oh, this is actually a real thing. And my junior year of college in 2013, the first class of women from my yeshiva graduated. There were three of them. And they all had jobs, which was crazy. And no one expected that. And so then, and that was like right as I was starting to make decisions about where I was going to go and what I was going to be. And it's like, we're doing this. Yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. It was like, wow, this is actually happening. Has these four years changed anything about your outlook? Have you become uh, more enthusiastic, more circumspect, uh, more concerned? What did you learn other than you know, the Talmud, you know, ab- about kind of this uh, still very unique position you're about to play in Jewish communal life? I've learned that people are much more open to it than I thought. I live in Washington Heights um, and I live there in part because I had friends there after college. Like, But it's like a much more Yeshiva University centric community. And I was really nervous because like, you go to a Shabbat meal and and you go around the table and, and everyone's like, like oh, what do you do? It's you. Yeah, exactly. So, so, and you can't lie about it. Cause like, what else do I do? Like I could tell people I'm unemployed or like I'm a student, but then there's always a follow-up question and eventually it comes out. So I was just like, pump myself up. Uh, I'm going to be bold. Tell people I'm at Yeshiva Maharat. And people who you would never expect were like, that's awesome. I totally support you. I think it's amazing. And, um, and that, that for me, like was a real game changer in terms of my confidence that I would actually have a job at the end of this. Look at that. Jews getting along. And I know. When amazing. you say Yeshiva University crowd, what do you mean by that? Like where, where does that fall on the spectrum for people who aren't familiar? Great. So we talked um, about the Rabbinical Council of America, which I'm obviously not welcome in and which has put out any number of um, statements um, against my um, yeshiva and against the potential of women as clergy. Um, so that all the rabbis who graduate from the rabbinical seminary, the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary, reads, I think they call it, um, is um, oh, they, they basically all end up members of the RCA. Um, and that's, that's the seminary of Yeshiva University, the Orthodox school yeah. in uptown Manhattan. Exactly. Right? So these are rabbis at those Shabbat dinners who are going into the, the umbrella organization that says, you can't do the job you're about to go do. Yeah. 
I mean, not everyone who lives in Washington Heights is a rabbinical student at Yeshiva University. <laughs> <laughs> Shockingly. What? <laughs> I know. There's wow. some Dominicans also. Was I also. misinformed? <laughs> All right, so you're about to go off to Chicago to start this new job at uh, an Orthodox synagogue there. What are you most excited about uh, when you become a Rabbanit? I'm excited for the work. I mean, this is what I've dreamed of. And for most of my life, thought would be like totally impossible pipe dream kind of thing. And um, and the work is hopefully going to be amazing. It's about forming Jewish souls and creating strong, observant Jewish identity for kids and their parents. And I don't know, keeping and building community. So let me let me ask you. That uh, sounds so much better than law school. I can't even tell you. Like I, I, I I'm by, so much better by leaps and bounds. So let me let me ask you this. You, you've already given us a taste of of your rabbinic wisdom, and I mean this very seriously, with your uh, exhortation against Game of Thrones, which I totally hear. Uh, uh, this is this is a good opportunity to you know shape the Jewish souls of our listeners. Give give them a little drush. What what should they do today to uh to awaken the spirit? Hmm. Um, I was I was back at Yale a few weeks ago giving a talk to a class called Life Worth Living, which I took in its first iteration my senior year. And a man came over to me afterwards from the Yale Divinity School and said, what's your favorite Hebrew word? Like, what is a Hebrew word that the most inspires your, I forget, what, it was some very Protestant language, like religious practice or something, but like faith practice or something like that, something Jews never talk about. Yeah. Um, and I was like... I have no idea. And then, but I didn't want to let him down in part because he seemed like influential in some way, but I didn't really know who he was. So anyways, so I I came up with on the spot um, this word from the Shema, which is me'odecha, which means like with all of your everything. Um, and that um, a real sense that like service of God can be done like with everything, with every part of your body, with every experience that you have, with every like snowflake that's falling outside. Um, everything is a potential for, for connection and, and a way of seeing God acting in our lives and connecting also to what halacha has to offer. So Rav Salvichik writes in Halachic Man about like the man who sees a spring bubbling and it's so beautiful. And uh, along with its aesthetic beauty, he also wonders to himself, wow, could this be a mikvah? Could this be a spot for ritual immersion? And and that sort of the Jewish law shapes how we see the world. It gives us a framing for saying everything can be a vessel for my spirituality, my connection to Jewish history and to the covenant of Sinai. Um, and I think that this word me'udecha that we say many times, you know, probably three times a day when we say the Shema kind of ties into that idea of like every experience has the potential to be a vessel for holiness and a, and a, and a moment and spot of, of communication with, with the Jewish past and with Jewish observance. So Leia, I am just thinking about how, how important it'll be for young people at your new congregation to see you in a position of power and, and just sort of the way in which that changes, sort of shifts the paradigm that, that young Orthodox Jews grew up with. I do have to ask, though, personally, how do you reconcile the idea that you will hold a leadership position with the things that you sort of halakhically can't do in that community? I mean, you, you say you don't count in a minion. I mean, how do you how do you personally get through that? I think there's no more pain in that for me than there is for any Orthodox woman. Um, and we all kind of deal with it differently. Um, but 
I'm very lucky <laughs> because I have other roles to play. I can give a sermon. I can teach a class. I can visit people in the hospital. What I often say is like, I'm really lucky because I get to do mitzvot professionally and get paid for them. Um, and that's like amazing and crazy. Um, and so, yes, there are certain things I can't do. But in the scheme of things, those are trivial, A. And B, in the Orthodox community, a lot of those things are typically done by lay people who are male. Um, so it's not like, oh, rabbi are always leading services. No, the opposite. Rabbis are almost never leading services. Usually you want someone with a better voice than many rabbis have. And also you want the rabbi shaking hands with anyone who's new who's walking into the room. And I can definitely shake hands with people, you know, so. Um. Amazing. Future Rabbanit Leah Sarna, uh, Mazel Tov on your impending graduation Thank and ordination. You. And uh, we'll talk to you at some point when you're out in Chicago doing the Lord's work. Thanks for being our Jew of the Week. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, everyone. Thanks, speaking of, Yay. Speaking of Gentile when formulations. When you're fellowshipping with your congregants. Doing yeah, right. the Lord's work and fellowshipping <laughs> with them. Exactly. Another faith-based works. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, J. Crew, you will notice that every single podcast on the planet asks you to rate and review them in iTunes. Why? Why do they do that? Well, here's the answer. The more reviews and ratings that a show gets, the higher the show winds up on the iTunes charts, which in turn helps more people find the show. So listen, as a favor to us, we really would love for you to go to iTunes, if that's what you use, and leave us a rating and a review. Maybe something like this one, which was left for us by Social Siege under the title Doodles of Fun. Ha ha. I'm loving these reviews of how the podcast is both too Jewish and not Jewish enough. What's more Jewish than saying that it isn't Jewish enough, I ask you. Anyways, I think my favorite thing about Unorthodox is how nuanced a lot of the political opinions are. I don't listen to many podcasts where I can hear from feminists and Orthodox folks and NRA members and Jewish Voice of Peace Nicks and so on. It's refreshing in an age where I can find my most perfect insular radical political echo chamber if I so wish. Also, listening to this gives me the opportunity to pretend that I live in New York for an hour at a time. Five stars. So thanks, Social Siege. And since we read your review on the air, send us a screenshot via email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, and we'll mail you some unorthodox stickers. And thanks to all of you for your reviews. They really mean a lot to us. Listen, if you want even more unorthodox, sign up for the newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, or go search for Unorthodox Podcast on Facebook and join our group. The Facebook group is amazing. In the last seven days alone, we've had posts from wandering Jews about fun things to do in London and Minnesota. We've had questions about Jewish communities in Central Asia. We've had debates about whether to use a top sheet or a duvet cover. We've had 11 different posts about holiday foods, and we've had a huge debate, and it's ongoing, about whether to call the Purim noisemaker a grogger or a gregor. Who even knew there was a debate about that? Finally, to show your love, you can wear us or carry us. Go to bitly.com, that's B-I-T-L-Y dot com slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and stickers to put on yourself and to surround your coffee with. Mailbox. Three really terrific voice messages from you guys this week. First of all, we go to a voicemail that takes on the Facebook debate we've been having about whether the Purim noisemaker is pronounced Grogger or Gregor. Hello, Stephanie, Liel, and Mark. 
This is Charles, a former Upper West Sider, now stuck in Pennsylvania. Anyway, I was listening to your calls the other day, um, and someone brought up the issue of pronunciation of the word grogger in Canada. So my question is, if in Canada, grogger is Gregor, is Drake Drek? Ponder that one. And second question is, when are you guys coming to Philadelphia? Thanks. Bye. I can't believe no one's made that Drake Drek joke. I guess it's like a very niche. It's a music writing Jewish publication. <laughs> so the answer, Charles, is we never thought of that. You've oh broken God. new unorthodox territory. And when we're coming to Philadelphia is when you invite us because we would love to do a live show in Philly. And I'm also always in Philly. So Philly in the house. Yeah. All right. Another call. Uh, this one also pop culture related. Hi, this is Lincoln Mitchell again. I just had a couple of comments uh, on the last podcast, which I really enjoyed. The first is that I was kind of saddened by your discussion of Spock. I think maybe you haven't seen yet the show enough, but to dismiss Spock as a droid or hyper-rational is really to kind of miss the point of Spock. It's like dismissing Leonard Cohen as being too depressing. That's really missing the point of Leonard Cohen's music. But more importantly, I was very struck by your next letter by Judith Clow, because Judith Clow was my high school English teacher. And I took, she was my teacher for 10th grade English, and in 12th grade, I took an elective with her called Literature of the Holocaust. And uh, just so you know, she was a fantastic teacher. I graduated from high school more than 30 years ago, and I still think about the books I read in her class and some of the things we discussed, and we've now gotten back in touch on Facebook. So I thought you would enjoy that story. Wow, the very goyishly named Link if I may, Link Mitchell. Uh, Judith Clow, of course, uh, who wrote in to talk to us about why not to cremate your loved ones, a very moving letter. But Liel, I mean, you're a big Star Trek fan. I, I guess I wanted to to take Link seriously. Should we ponder the, the Spock Judaism connection a little more deeply than we did? I mean, is how Jewish I mean, look, is we he? could if we wanted to lose 87% of our <laughs> listenership because that's what would happen. I would just start talking and then never shut up. So my uh, nerd ticket... Nerd etiquette um, is just to keep Star Trek conversation pleasant and professional. <laughs> we'll have a subgroup in the <laughs> Facebook group. Not get excited. <laughs> Thank you for your comments. Thank you, Link. Uh, okay, I, I well, that love was that this person is writing. I'm like, maybe you haven't watched enough Star Trek or listened to enough <laughs> Leonard Cohen. I was like, right. Yes, I have not done any of these things. It was the most Liel letter of all time. Okay. Uh, Finally, sticking with the TV theme, one last voicemail from you guys. Hi, this is Courtney Rosen in San Antonio, Texas, and I was just listening to your episode about Jews on TV, and you missed an entire Jewish family. Um, I forget the actors, but they are part of a TV show called Numbers. It was a mathematician genius professor at a university, his FBI brother, and they're single because of the dead mom father and they deal with Judaism in the storyline but I loved it because one it was geeky and two it was because it used math to self kind totally geeky and also because they had to deal with balancing their Judaism in real life and it was one of the only sitcoms that you had professional life and Jewish life and family life all together and they didn't try to cut it all up and you also forgot when you talked about exports from Belgium I was very disappointed you forgot racist comics like Tanta. How can you forget? All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. We, we forgot what now? Racist comments like, is she, did she say Tintin? Race. Oh, racist comics. I think racist comics. I will say Numbers is a great show and it stars David Krumholtz, who is like always playing the Jewish guy. He's in 10 Things I Hate About You as like the nerdy Jewish friend. <laughs> 
And so he you has know. a dick written on his face, right? Heath Ledger actually scrawls a an outline of a penis in magic marker on his face in Ten Things I Hate About You, a classic movie moment. It's a show about math. Yeah. That's all and I will say. And it has Judd Hirsch and it has Rob Morrow. No, this is a great letter. This is absolutely, it was a very Jewish show. David Krumholtz, of course, is also the, the porn magnate on The Deuce in, on HBO. Now, he's he's a great, great, great actor and super Jewy. And that's a very important letter. And thank also you for giving us one more reason to hate Belgium. Amen. And to watch TV. And to watch TV. So if you want to send us a letter, write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. Our Gentile of the Week, which I still feel so weird saying, but this week we've got Lauren Euler. Her writing on books and culture has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times Book Review, The Baffler, The New Republic, and elsewhere. She was previously an editor at Broadly, the women's site at Vice, and is the co-author of Alyssa Mastermonico's memoir, Who Thought This Was a Good Idea, about her time as Deputy Chief of Staff for Barack Obama. Lauren, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's snowing. I barely made it. On the notoriously good New York subway system. It's really an amazing system. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will get to your career, your accomplishments, your great writing. But first, I want to talk about Mark. Who, I love to talk about Mark. Who has this other life as like a Yale professor. And he like he's in New Haven. We don't know what he's doing there. But you've actually had him as a professor. That's funny. I consider the podcast. I remember when the podcast was starting and I was like, oh, that's his other life. But we're friends on Facebook. And I'm like, that's my Yale professor. I think I was in your one of your first classes as a writing were, teacher. You, yeah. Yeah. You were a fall, a fall term freshman. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, or first year, as they now say. Yeah. I think maybe like I didn't even really know what the New Yorker was. And then Mark Oppenheimer, like it told me what the New Yorker was. So, Yeah. I was a child from West Virginia at Yale, and I remember one one assignment we had to write like a humor piece, and I did something that was like very weird, and he was like, "This is very weird." A minus by, and that's, <laughs> he was a really supportive, <laughs> professor. Yeah, a very supportive professor. Dear Lord, you're weird. <laughs> so you start in West Virginia, then you get to Yale, mm-hmm. you meet these amazing professors, and now you're in New York and you're writing and you sort of are everywhere. Am I everywhere? Well, you write a lot. I the People keep saying this, but I'm like, I haven't written anything in two months or something. I think it's probably the illusion of Twitter that gives me that. <laughs> so Lauren, a lot of... Um, a lot of your writing then when I was your teacher, but but especially since, has been about women's issues, has been about feminism. and But not all of it. Some of it's about books. Some of it's about, you know, film. Some of it's about, didn't you write the piece about biscuits in West Virginia? Was I, that your piece? I did write a piece about biscuits in West Virginia, yeah. <laughs> and I guess I'm curious, you know, <laughs> there is this way in which when you do stuff like write a really, really critical essay about Roxane Gay's book of essays or write for or edit for a, a women's website called Broadly in which you can get this reputation as a feminist writer, but you probably don't think of yourself that way. You probably think of yourself as a writer. And now we're in this moment where feminist criticism is really at a premium, where we're talking a lot about women's issues. Do you feel like that's become too much of your career? Do you want to think of yourself as more of a writer separate from that particular moment and topic? Um, I think what I would like to do is like be an example of how someone can like mostly write about feminism, but not be like a a feminist writer, I guess. I mean, I just, in fact, I just got into an argument with someone about this this weekend <laughs> when when he was sort of telling me, you know, feminism 
is not the reason that your writing is good. And I was like, but yes, it is because feminism is the way that I learned how to think about the world and about how I relate to the world and also like about how I learned to do critical work. And I think it's sort of like inextricable from my experience of the world and from many women's experience of the world. Uh, Also, people are like, why don't you write more about West Virginia? You could really use that. You could like really like be the West Virginia writer. And I'm like, I really don't want to be that because nobody cares about West Virginia. Because I did whatever I could to get the hell out of West Virginia. (laughs) Why would I why would I write about West Virginia? Yeah, exactly. Whereas feminism affects pretty much everyone, men and women. Feminism may have a future. Well, it's also interesting. West I Virginia. mean, you yeah. can't really help what you're interested in. It would be I feel guilty for not being that interested in West Virginia. Um, but <laughs> but I'm just like not interested in it. Um, someone's gonna like t- tweet at me or something that I'm like a terrible traitor and they don't want me there anyway. Uh, but I mean, I'm like interested in sex and I'm interested in gender and I'm interested in like how people perceive me as a woman and how pe- you like inevitably perceive art made by women. So. There's nothing I can really do about it, I guess, to answer that question. Well, it's interesting because it's something that Jewish writers face a lot, right? It's like, are you a Jewish writer or are you a writer who happens to be Jewish? And it's like, these questions actually aren't so useful because it's like, it's like what you say. It's like, I'm Jewish. Like, both? To I don't someone know. Famously, I forget who famously responded. Well, uh, my question is, is this a dumb question or is this a question that's dumb? Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like Nora Ephron on being about like on panels about women in film. Like it's it's sort of this sort of seemingly reductive narrative. Yeah. And but it's also like I don't want to be like, let's not talk about that because it is important. I mean, you guys have a Jewish podcast. So you're like, yeah, I'm a Jewish writer. Right. I don't know. We're Jewish podcasters. We're, Jewish we're, podcasters. We're terribly provincial. At least I am terribly provincial. I don't, you know, I, I don't have any qualms. I'm I'm a Jew. One, but there's ways in which you want to escape this idea that you can only write about things that have to do with women. But also, there's the beauty in being committed to writing about things like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess the famous Jonathan Franzen like fit that he threw about the Oprah book club about the corrections, right? Where he said like. I don't want the Oprah sticker on the corrections because then it's going to make it seem like it's a book for women and I want everyone to read my book. And I think that's a pretty good example. Uh, I always thought it was like, it was like a lowbrow distinction for him. I never th- realized it was a, a anti-woman mm-hmm. thing. Well, maybe it wasn't a lowbrow distinction for him. I don't really know. I always interpreted, well, Jennifer Weiner talks about this a lot where she is sort of like, I should be taken as seriously as Jonathan Franzen, right? And she talks about the Oprah thing as being a sexist situation, but maybe it is a lowbrow no, thing. No, it definitely is really sexist, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, definitely, te- I mean te- it's both. Also, who doesn't want to be in Oprah's book club? Who wants to sell books? I mean, who doesn't want to be in Oprah's anything? I don't want to be in any book club that would have me as <laughs> a member. If Oprah was adopting, I'd be like, hey, <laughs> sorry, Mom. I'm curious. You read so many books and you work as a critic. Can you, can you think of a book, and I hate putting people on the spot. I can never answer this question. That just didn't get enough attention. Something really terrific that we may not have heard of that you would encourage us all to go check out. A book like recently that came out or general. generally. Okay. So yeah, generally. in fact, I, the piece I finished yesterday, it was about Helen DeWitt, who is an incredible writer. And they just, the New York Times just did a piece that was like the new vanguard of female writers of the 21st century. And they named 15 female fiction writers who were like pushing the fo- the novel form forward and they did not include Helen DeWitt uh which i found personally offensive and also ridiculous so she has written her her third book 
which is a book of short stories, is coming out in May. But her first novel, The Last Samurai, is like a total masterpiece. Anyone who who reads it would be able to see that. Uh, And she also has a novel called Lightning Rods, which is a satire about sexual harassment. (laughs) Uh, So any of those. Lightning Rods is probably the easiest, most accessible, and also straightforwardly hilarious of these books that you could read. Helen DeWitt. All right, I'm going to check. I'm going to buy her today. In you fact. should. If I get out of the today. house in this in this snowstorm, if I'm only buy there was a today. way to buy things without, without leaving, the, leaving house. the house. Amazing. <laughs> specifically, I'd to, yeah. I'd have to go on the Twitter net or something. Um, okay, but I know that you came to this internationally renowned panel of Jewish experts with uh-huh. a question for us. What is it that about Judaism or Yiddishkeit or Jews that we can answer for you, Lauren? Um, okay, so I thought a long time about this, and I felt like I knew so little about Judaism that I couldn't even really think of a serious question. So uh, what I went with was, who do you think is going to be the first Jewish president of the United States, assuming that he or she is alive today? Oh, I have a very easy answer. For okay. that. The, the thing that your question actually made me think of was, do you guys remember Eric Kanner? He yes. was a, a congressman from Virginia, and he actually, like, oh, yeah. until he lost his house seat in, I think, 2014, ran, like, in an, a total shakeup. And when, I, when your question, I know it's an actual, like, who could be, he actually, like, was going to be the next Jewish. He, he was one of those, he talked about his faith. Like, he mm-hmm. spoke in a way that actually, like, American Christians could understand Judaism. And so, so it just made me realize how sad, like, it feels like 100 years ago at this point in, like, a totally different era. But there actually was a Jewish politician who felt really, really close um, yeah. But, and then another one who could have been was Eric Greitens, the, the current governor of Missouri, who is a Jewish Republican, Navy SEAL, yada, yada, and now is, you know, has been indicted for taking like blackmailing his ex-mistress with nudie pics of her strapped to their exercise machine. So no uh, dice. But Leon, move <laughs> us forward. Yeah, take us out yeah. of this. Who actually could have been? It's 2018. You guys are wasting time on politicians. The answer is Adam Sandler. Uh, President Sandler would be an amazing and gracious president. Um, The Hanukkah song will be performed at inaugurations. Uh, He could do that that little voice that he does sometimes on some of his movies earlier, like Billy Madison in the State of the Union address. It'd be great. Talk about Twitter controversy. Twitter hates Adam Sandler. By the way, with, with Vice President Gilbert Gottfried. That's oh way too much. But you know, I actually watched the Meyerowitz stories last night, which is the Noah Baumbach um, movie. With, yeah, that's not he, that's not Canon Sandler. But no, no, but it's Adam Sandler, and what is, it's it's as a serious actor, and you're like, oh my god, you actually can act, and it's you're interesting and compelling. You're not just this like shtick. Now, does Twitter guy. hate Adam Sandler because he's funny or because he's Jewish? Uh, I think it's because he's not funny, or like because he's. That there's a producer who just raised his hand in a scene. I'm going to assume agreement. <laughs> uh, I think it's because he's not funny. Well, right, our producer is a, is a communist, but, though. So, but, you know. there, but he's done like really sort of like racially and culturally insensitive things in the last few years, right? Wasn't there that movie about Native Americans? That, oh, like, yeah. I that's think what he's got sort Twitter of angry. retro, right? In a way that's. Or Billy like, Madison, where he was culturally appropriating six year olds. Yeah, that's offensive. <laughs> I am going to take your question seriously and say that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'd say that. Um, By the way, I'm so, sorry, Adam, Mark, but Donald Trump is president, so Adam Sandler is way out of left it's field. It's not here. so far off, right? So Adam I mean, Sandler's our Oprah. What's amazing is all the people who are littered on the floor, right? Eric Cantor, Eric Greitens, um, Al Franken was probably going to run. Oh yeah, Al Franken was probably going to run I at ta- some point. I talked to my friend, my Jewish friend, and I was like, "What should I ask these? What question should I ask them?" And then I came up with this, and he was like, "Well, you know, they're going to talk about Elliot Spitzer." Oh yeah, what about oh, my Anthony God. Weiner? Like we had all the <laughs> Anthony Weiner, yeah. <laughs> 
or Anthony Weiner. So what else so do you talk to know. your Jewish friend about? Uh, I mean, the, mostly his forays into dating, which that's mostly what we <laughs> talk about there for Jew. So I'm just. I'm going to say that certainly Chuck Schumer wants to be president. I don't think it's going to happen, but oh, I'd be shocked if he didn't run at some point. Um, and then there's some, you know, some Congress people who, I mean, Jared Polis in Colorado probably wants it. And, and uh, Ted Deutsch in Florida is seen as a comer. I, I mean, but no, a lot of the great ones are just, you know, the anti-Semites took them down. Vladimir Putin took down Anthony Weiner. He took down Al Franken. And, uh, you know, he's, he's coming for all of them. So. Did you know Eric Garcetti's Jewish? Mm-hmm. Yep, I didn't know. Actually, I was yeah. looking up there. You go. You've so. solved it. He's a it's handsome, be, handsome man. Yeah, yeah, he is. It's going to be Eric Garcetti. Um, Lauren Euler, thank you so much for being our Dental of the week. If we want to follow your writing, if people want to want to read more of you, is there a one stop shopping for your your oeuvre? I guess it's going to be at Lauren Euler on Twitter. Unfortunately, <laughs> I have a bad website. Maybe that's what I should do this week: is fix my website. Yeah. There so you go. One day it could be laurenoiler Awesome. One Thanks, day. Lauren. One day. Thanks, Lauren. Teacher's pet. I wanna be teacher's pet. I wanna be huddled and cuddled as close to you as I can get. That's the lesson. We're guessing your best uh, Mazel Tovs. Uh, Liel, Stephanie, who wants to go first? I'll go first. Uh, Liel Leibowitz. Yeah, I'll. I'll Are you Mazel explaining? I'll man step over uh, Stephanie. My Mazel Tov is to tablet writer Gretchen Rachel Hammond, who uh, this week ran a fantastic story in tablet. It's 8,500 words long, and every single one of them is terrific. And it's about how she. Um, how she found a home in the transgender community and how she lost it when uh, being Jewish proved too much for that community to take. Whoa. Check Whoa. it out. Stephanie, will you lighten things up a little? Yes. For us oh, here? I have a mouse It's to my sister, Francesca, who I spent the, a lot of the weekend with her and her husband and her kid. And I just, it's so amazing to see her as a mom. She just is so, she just like has it under control. And she just seeing her with Noah and she just like gets, she just, she's just become this just amazing mom. And it's just so fun to watch her and the baby. And she, you know, even when it's a little crazy, she just, you realize she that got it. Being an aunt is opportunity for payback for all the things she's done to you as a big sister. You could like train that kid kid to like do whatever you want to her no i love it's just being in is amazing because i just i get to hang with him i get to go home um yeah he starts crying it's really fun and do you change diapers stephanie i have changed diapers not this weekend I'm, i'm present for diaper changing I, I see. It's you're easing your way in. Um, my Mazel Tov is I'm. It, it's a handoff this week. I want to give it to our listener Sammy Klaskin, who wrote in and and wanted the Mazel Tov. And by the way, her Mazel Tov is so unorthodox. Just listen to every element of this. First of all, her name is Sammy Klaskin. Just terrific Jewish unorthodox listening name. She writes in quote I want to give my dear friend Hannah Green, who introduced me to unorthodox, a big Mazel Tov for getting accepted to do her PhD in Holocaust studies at Oxford University. You go, girl. Love Sammy Klaskin. So Hannah Green, first of all, we've got we've got the Sammy Klaskin. We've got Hannah Green. We've got the fact that they listen to Unorthodox. We've got the PhD, right? Mom and dad are proud. And then we've got the PhD in Holocaust studies. Everything about that Mazel Tov. At Oxford. <laughs> we've got the Anglophilia. Everything about that Mazel Tov is is unorthodox 2018. I, I love so. the you go girl, like you go girl to study about the <laughs> destruction of six million Jews. Like, okay, party. You go genocide girl. 
Yeah. <laughs> also, final Mazel Tov. I want to give Mazel Tov to whatever person from the Twin Cities is going to invite my brother Jonathan and his wife and two kids to a Passover Seder because they can't make it east this year and the Facebook group hasn't come through yet and somebody in greater Minneapolis, St. Paul wants to have them for Pesach. Drop me an email at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us and leave a voicemail, 914-570-4869. For merchandise, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sputnik. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Joshua Cross and Shira Tulushkin with help from Julia Frakes. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Monsieur Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve. Eve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Amy Small, way up there in Vermont. If you think your rabbi should be chosen to offer rabbinic supervision, it's a rigorous, rigorous process to get chosen, but it can start when you write to me with your rabbi's name at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. We recorded Argo Studios, which is currently in back-channel negotiations with North Korea, and we are proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. 